Welcome to episode number seven of Calm History. This is a memoir episode featuring part two of Titanic, My Survival Story. I'm Harris, and I created this time machine of tranquility to bring you the drama and excitement of history, but in a calm tone so you can just chill and relax. Please do peek in the episode notes if you're interested in getting free access to the bonus episodes of Calm History and 400 other episodes for a limited time. Or if you're interested in becoming a podcast supporter, which would help to keep this podcast going and make my tiny heart monkey do backflips. <laughs> All right. This is part two of a Titanic survivor's first-person account. If you haven't listened to part one yet, then hit pause and go enjoy that episode. If you have listened to part one already, then I'll start with a summary of that episode to remind you where things left off. In the prior episode, our passenger boarded the Titanic and witnessed a couple of curious situations while the ship pulled away from the port. He noticed how some of the crew members who were a bit late weren't allowed to board the ship, and he also witnessed the Titanic almost colliding with some other ocean liners. In this episode, the Titanic voyage finally gets underway, the ship then heads to a couple more ports to pick up additional passengers and then begins the long voyage to New York. Our passenger shares his experiences and observations during the first few days of travel. He recalls a lot of ominous signs prior to the collision, all which are truly a bit spooky. This episode will conclude with the collision and his immediate reaction and response. If you listen to the series of bonus episodes titled Titanic 360, A Multi-Perspective, you'll learn all about what the captain, the crew, and the other passengers were experiencing during these same moments as our passenger in this series. The Titanic 360 bonus series also includes fascinating details about the ship, the collision, and the rescue process that were uncovered from an official investigation by the British government. Okay, time to begin today's historical tale. I hope it distracts and relaxes your overactive brain squirrels. Titanic, My Survival Story, Part 2, The Voyage Begins. On April 10th, 1912, around noon on Wednesday, we left Southampton, England, and headed to another port in France to pick up some more passengers. 
The trip took about five or six hours, and we arrived in Cherbourg, France, around dusk. We soon departed again after taking more passengers and postal mail on board. It was about 8.30 p.m., and the waters were calm. We traveled through the night to one more port in Ireland to pick up some final passengers. It was another uneventful trip, as we had an enjoyable passage across the English Channel. The next morning, the wind was a bit too cold for sitting out on the deck, so I just ventured around inside. At about noon on Thursday, which was now April 11th, we arrived at Queenstown, Ireland, which truly has a beautiful and scenic coast. But our arrival to the harbor was a little strange. We pulled in very slowly, with the sounding line dropping all the time. Then we came to a stop, well out to sea, with our screws churning up the bottom and turning the sea all brown with sand from below. I wondered if perhaps the sounding line had revealed a smaller depth than was thought safe for the great size of the Titanic. This seemed to be confirmed by the sight of sand churned up from the bottom, but I'm just conjecturing. At last, two small boats were used to bring us more passengers and, of course, more postal mail. During our short time in Queenstown, I observed what could be viewed as another bad omen. As one of the tender boats containing passengers and mail neared the Titanic, some of those on board gazed up at one of the ship's smokestacks, which was towering above them. What they saw was rather curious. It was a furnace stoker's head peering out at them from the top of one of these enormous funnels. His head was black with soot from his work in the stokehold below. The smokestack he was peering out of was not a real smokestack. It was a dummy stack that was just used for ventilation. He had climbed up inside for a joke, but to some of those who saw him, they viewed it as a bad omen of dangers to come. An American lady related to me with the deepest conviction and earnestness of manner that she saw the man and attributes the sinking of the Titanic largely to that. Bad omens or strange events are not something you want on a maiden voyage, and this would not be the last strange occurrence. After a while, all the newest passengers from Queenstown were aboard. We cast off at about 1.30 p.m., once again churning up the sea bottom. The Titanic turned slowly through a quarter circle until her nose 
pointed down along the Irish coast, and then we steamed rapidly away from Queenstown. In our wake soared and screamed hundreds of gulls, which had fought over the remnants of lunch, pouring out of our waste pipes as we lay to in the harbor entrance. The gulls now followed us in the expectation of more spoils. I watched one particular gull keep pace with the Titanic as it forged through the water at twenty knots. Even as night fell, some of the gulls were still with us, dipping down into the wake in the foam behind us. By morning, though, our graceful flying companions were gone. All afternoon on Friday, now April 12th, we steamed along the coast of Ireland, progressing about 386 miles since yesterday afternoon. As dusk fell, the coast rounded away from us to the northwest, and the last we saw of Europe was the Irish mountains in the dropping darkness. There is very little to relate over the next day or so. We journeyed about 519 miles from Friday to Saturday, and then about 546 miles from Saturday to Sunday. The sea was calm, but the wind was still too cold to sit out on the deck to read or write. Many of us spent a good part of the time in the library reading and writing. I wrote a large number of letters and posted them day by day in the box outside the library door. My letters, if not completely dissolved, may still be sitting in that box to this day. Each morning, the sunrise was a beautiful sight to one who had not crossed the ocean before. And each night, the sun sank right back into the sea, making an undulating, glittering path as it did. The purser told us that our rate of travel was a bit slower than expected. We would be docking in New York on Wednesday morning instead of Tuesday night, as we had expected. However, on Sunday, we were glad to see a longer run had been made, and it was thought we should make New York after all on Tuesday night. The purser remarked that they were not pushing her this trip and don't intend to make any fast running. During Sunday's lunch, I remember conversations about the speed and comfort of ocean liners. All those who had crossed many times were unanimous in saying that the Titanic was the most comfortable boat they'd ever been on. They also said that they preferred the speed we were making to that of the faster boats, because this slower speed resulted in less vibrations. 
I noticed, in common to others, how the Titanic listed to port. Our group watched the skyline through the portholes as we sat at the purser's table in the saloon. It was plain she did so. The purser remarked that coal had probably been used mostly from the starboard side, causing the port side to be heavier and tilt closer to the water. This curious tilting of the port side would also be noticed later, after the collision. The tilting caused the lifeboats on the port side to swing away from the ship. This created a large gap that had to be crossed to get into the lifeboats. Passengers were literally thrown across this gap, or they had to crawl on chairs that were laid flat to create a makeshift bridge. At the time, everyone must have thought the tilt was due to the collision, but my point is that I noticed a port side tilt before the collision. I'm not sure what to make of that. I suspect the tilt was probably worsened by the collision. Besides studying the role of the ship, I was also observing other passengers during the couple of days before the collision. I often noticed how the third-class passengers were enjoying every minute of their time. Many played a fun skipping game while a Scotchman played the song In and Out and Roundabout on his bagpipes. I also noticed a man of about 20 to 24 years of age who was well-dressed, always gloved, and nicely groomed. He was obviously quite out of place among the other third-class passengers. He never looked happy, and I classified him as a man who had been a failure in some way at home, and now had to travel third class to America. There was another interesting man who was traveling steerage class, or fourth class. Curiously, though, his wife appeared to be traveling second class. He would climb the stairs, leading from the fourth class area to the second class deck, and talk affectionately with her across the low gate which separated them. I never saw him after the collision, but I do think his wife was on the ship that rescued us. Of all those I observed in third and fourth class during the voyage, I didn't recognize many during or after our rescue. Now let me continue on to Sunday, the day we struck the iceberg. Service was held in the saloon by the purser in the morning. Going on deck after lunch, we were met with a cold and bitter wind. This wind was probably just the result of our speed, rather than a strong wind coming off the sea. I returned to the library, stopping for a moment to 
read our distance traveled, and observe our position on the chart. We were expected to reach New York in two days, with calm weather predicted all the way. Scanning around, I noticed the library was crowded that afternoon, owing to the cold on the deck. I can look back and see every detail of the library that afternoon. The beautifully furnished room, with lounges, armchairs, and small writing or card tables scattered about. There were writing desks around the walls of the room, and the library had glass case shelves flanking one side. The whole area was finished in mahogany and relieved with white fluted wooden columns that supported the deck above. Nearby, I saw a man and his wife with two children. They were all young and happy. I had seen the man before. He was always dressed in a gray knickerbocker suit with a camera slung over his shoulder. I noticed several other couples and families occupied with different activities throughout the library. I don't recall seeing many of them again after this day. I've heard that the percentage of men saved of the second-class passengers was only 8%, the lowest of any passenger division. I then noticed the library steward with his thin, stooping, sad face. He usually has nothing to do but serve out books, but this afternoon he is busier than I've ever seen him. He is serving out baggage declaration forms for passengers to fill in. Mine is actually still in my possession. It says, Form for non-residents in the United States, Steamship Titanic, number 31444-D. I had filled it in that afternoon and slipped it in my pocket instead of returning it to the steward. Also still in my possession is this receipt which states, quote, White Star Line, RMS Titanic, 208. This label must be given up when the article is returned. The property will be deposited in the purser's safe. The company will not be liable to passengers for the loss of money, jewels, or ornaments by theft or otherwise not so deposited. End quote. The property deposited in my case was money. I had placed it in an envelope sealed it with my name written across the flap, and handed it to the purser. Along with other similar envelopes, it may still be intact in the safe at the bottom of the sea. After dinner, I went to the saloon 
and I joined Mr. Carter and some hundred other passengers who were singing hymns. Some individuals were allowed to choose the hymns, and it was curious how many chose hymns dealing with dangers of the sea. In particular, I noticed the hushed tone with which we all sang the hymn for those in peril on the sea. The singing must have gone on until, I think, a little after ten o'clock, and then we all had biscuits and coffee. Mr. Carter brought the evening to a close with a few words of thanks to the purser for the use of the saloon. Curiously, he also remarked on the great confidence all felt on board of this great ocean liner with her steadiness and her size. Prior to leaving the saloon, I talked with Mr. Carter and his wife over a cup of coffee. I then said goodnight to them, and I retired to my cabin at about 10.45 p.m. Tragically, I would never see the Carters again. I headed to my cabin. It was quite close to the saloon, so it was a short walk. I've been fortunate enough to secure a two-berth cabin to myself on D-deck. This put my cabin under decks A, B, and C, and above decks E and F. Those on the bottom F deck had a long walk to get up to the top decks. The Titanic management has been criticized for supplying the boat with elevators. It's been said that they were an expensive luxury, and the room they took up might have been utilized in some way for more life-saving appliances. Whatever else may have been superfluous, the elevators certainly were not. Older passengers in cabins, way down on F-deck, would hardly have got to the top deck during the whole voyage had it not been for the elevator. The elevator was operated by a lift boy, and I wonder where he was on the night of the collision. I would have been glad to find him in our boat, or on the Carpathia when we took count of the saved. He was quite young, not more than sixteen, I think. One day, as he put me out of the lift and saw through the windows a game of ring toss in progress on the deck, he said in a wistful tone, My, I wish I could go out there sometimes. I wished he could too, and I made a jesting offer to take charge of his lift for an hour while he went out to watch the game. He smiled, shook his head in the negative, and thanked me for my kind offer, then went back to work. When I reached my room, I undressed and climbed into the top berth. I read from about 11.15 p.m. to 11.45 p.m., which was the time we struck the iceberg. While reading, 
and before we actually had collided with the iceberg, I had noticed an increased vibration of the ship. I assumed that we were going at a higher speed than at any other time since we sailed from Queenstown. If this is correct, then we were going faster that night at the time we struck the iceberg than we had done before. Besides the increased vibration, the only other thing I remember is the muffled sound that came through the ventilation. From those vents, I could hear stewards talking and moving along the corridors. At this point, nearly all the passengers were in their cabins. Some asleep in bed, others undressing, and others returning from the smoking room and still discussing many things. At 11.45 p.m., which was the moment of the collision, I only noticed a slight disturbance. It was nothing more than an extra heave of the engines and a very obvious dancing motion of the mattress on which I sat. Nothing more than that. No sound of a crash or of anything else. No sense of shock. No jar that felt like one heavy body meeting another. Then the same sensation repeated with about the same intensity. The thought came to me that they must have still further increased the speed. But in reality, the Titanic was being cut open by the iceberg and water was pouring in her side at this time. Yet, no sensation that would indicate such a disaster was noticed by us. It fills me with astonishment now to think about it. Here was this enormous vessel running her starboard side against an iceberg, yet I was not flung on the floor. The explanation is simple enough. The Titanic struck the iceberg with a force of impact of over a million foot tons. Her plates were less than an inch thick, so they must have been cut through as a knife cuts paper. A quiet but lethal collision. And so, with no thought of anything serious having happened to the ship, I just continued on with my reading. I still heard the same murmurs from the stewards in the adjoining cabins. There was no other sound, no cry in the night, no alarm given, no one afraid. There was nothing which would cause fear to the most timid person. But in a few moments, I felt the engine slow and stop. The dancing motion and the vibration ceased suddenly after being a part of our very existence for four days. That was the first hint that anything out of the ordinary had happened. It was suddenly brought home to all on the ship that the engines, that part of the ship 
that drove us through the sea had stopped dead. But the stopping of the engines gave us no information. We had to make our own guesses as to why we had stopped. I drew my own conclusion at that moment. I figured that we had dropped a propeller blade. When this happens, the engines always race away until they are controlled. This would account for the extra heave they gave. It's not a very logical conclusion when considered now, because the engines should have continued to heave all the time until we stopped. But it was at the time a sufficiently logical hypothesis to hold. Acting on it, I jumped out of bed, slipped on a dressing gown over my pajamas, and put on some shoes. I went out of my cabin and into the hall near the saloon. Here was a steward leaning against the staircase. He was probably waiting until those in the smoke room above had gone to bed so he could put out the lights. I said, Why have we stopped? He replied, I don't know, sir, but I don't suppose it is anything much. I said, Well, I'm going on deck to see what it is. And I started towards the stairs. He smiled indulgently at me as I passed him and said, All right, sir, but it's mighty cold up there. I'm sure at that time he thought I was rather foolish to go up there with so little reason. And I must confess, I did feel rather absurd for not remaining in the cabin. In the moment, I felt that I was making a needless fuss to walk about the ship in my dressing gown. But it was my first trip across the sea. I'd enjoyed every minute of it, and I was keenly alive to note every new experience. I wasn't being driven by fear so much, but rather curiosity. A ship with a drop propeller was quite interesting, and I wanted the full-on deck experience. No one else was about the passages or going upstairs to investigate like I was. The steward's response in the empty hallways made me feel guilty about my mix of concern and curiosity. Yet, I continued my way to the upper deck. This is where I'll pause part two. Do stay tuned for part three. If you want to show your gratitude and kindness for this podcast, then please do consider becoming a podcast supporter. Your support will get you access to all the bonus episodes of Calm History and 400 other episodes. This includes the bonus series, Titanic 360, a multi-perspective. You'll learn all about what the captain, the crew, and the other passengers were experiencing 
during these same moments as our passenger in this series. You can become a podcast supporter and get free access to these bonus episodes for a limited time by using the link in the episode notes. Thank you for even considering it.